it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Ladies and gentlemen, am I totally screwed or what? You're listening to One Sensational Shot. This is The Evening Glass with Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy. We've already taken a quick stroll through Luke's favourite films of the year. I have a top 10. I have a top 10, which is a top 11. (laughs) From January through to December, the films I saw at the cinema, which I enjoyed the most. Manchester by the Sea by Lonigan, Chirac by Spike Lee, which we talked about on an earlier podcast. Please do try to check that one out. L by Verhoeven, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, Baby Driver by Edgar Wright, Dunkirk, Logan Lucky, Aronofsky's Mother, The Breakfast Club, Call Me By Your Name, and It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm going to look to talk about a few of them. Let's start off, though, with one of the better cinematic experiences that I had this year, which, in fact, wasn't even at the Picture House, and certainly wasn't at Picture House because the boycott continues, More on that in the next edition of The Evening Glass. (laughs) My dad and I went to Basquiat Boom For Real, the exhibition of the early 80s fantastic New York graffiti artist at the Barbican. And playing there as part of it was Downtown 81, a film I don't know much about other than that it is a perfect slice of pre-Giuliani, grimy, gritty, urban decay New York. In the film, Basquiat walks around, goes to a few gigs... Basically, I think it's the sort of picture that, at the time, probably wouldn't have been of interest to anybody outside of that scene. But 30-odd years removed, it's a terrific snapshot. And involved in this film, bands that Luke and I are so excited about, not like Kid Creole and the Coconuts, who I think most people have slept on, me included, and it was only Mm. a couple of months ago I was chatting with my uncle about it. He was saying, Tropical Gangsters, one of the best albums made in the 80s. So Kid Creole is in there and Basquiat goes to see him. So it works, in some ways, it works like a concert film uh, with Kid Creole and then James White and the Blanks. Wonderful footage, uh, three or four minutes um, of multiple songs, but definitely um, two, three, four minutes of uninterrupted concert footage from the luminaries of the early 80s no-wave scene. What a delight I it was. I should try and check some of that out. I don't think I've ever seen footage of him. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I guess within the age of YouTube, I should probably just search some of this stuff out. You don't think to, do you? But exactly, wow, the, yeah. You just, you just came across it in, the, in, this, in this movie. Yeah, so we, uh, we were at the exhibition and we sat on the benches for as long as our asses could take, which honestly was at least 40 minutes. So we stood, we, we came across it early on. I said to my dad, this is Downtown 81. We need to look at everything else, and then if we've still got 40 minutes left, we should come back. So we watched two or three minutes, strolled around Mm. and returned. We talk often, and people are romantic about that period in New York's history. It's a period that was artistically vital and vibrant that spawned everybody we love. Remember as well that the Beastie Boys are teenagers at this time, so they're sucking it all up in the same way that we now look back and suck it up. Uh, Mm-hmm. But um, and the other thing is that Basquiat, the much of the original dialogue track was lost. Basquiat's been redubbed by Saul Williams, the rapper, 
who did mm. a list of demands, which I used to use on the radio show for yeah, the intro. Yeah, I remember that. Got a list yeah. of demands written on the palm of my hand. I got a list, <laughs> I got a list of demands. For Terrific some, for some listeners' benefit, uh, that was the, the student radio show that you had on Livewire 1350 AM UEA, which is where we first met, actually, isn't it? So Downtown 81 was a surprise. The modern equivalent of Downtown 81 may well be Good Time by the Safdie brothers. New filmmakers on me, Robert Pattinson stars in Good Time with one of the Safdie brothers. They direct together, but one of them is also cast in the film as the developmentally challenged brother of protagonist Robert Pattinson, who is a mucky small-time crook. They And this film is... Uh, it felt to me like an action Bronson album on screen. It's all. It's set in Flushing. It's all about the new immigrants, not Italians and Irish, but modern immigrants, um, right, Russian sure. immigrants. Baghdad, uh, Barkad Abdi from Captain Phillips is in there as a Somali immigrant. Oh. So we're at gutter yeah. level here as Robert Pattinson commits a robbery. Does all right, actually. In, in the first 10 or 15 minutes, he doesn't bungle the robbery so much as pull it off successfully, but then has trouble with the escape and then it becomes a one crazy night picture and things get more intense and weirder and take interesting turns and Robert Pattinson's fantastic it was one of the last films I saw of the year and the Safdies I've heard are in talks to direct a reboot remake of 48 Hours I'm quite pleased to hear that because they seem to understand the um <laughs> it's a, I'll try and get the line right there's a line in Quick Change well, Bill Murray says, I understand how this city degrades the individual. And that's what Downtown 81, and that's kind of like what uh, Good Time is about. Uh, a mm. New York which is so hard on its citizens and everyone at street level, uh, I mean, they're not eating out of trash cans, but they've all got their hustle of kind of finding liquid LSD and hoping to parlay that into a, a business opportunity and street fights and gritty grimy but funny stuff as well and there's a brilliant I, i've i've heard that it's um incredibly uncomfortable watching i, yeah. I think people, people struggled with it throughout the when it was released uh, not so long ago yeah it has a terrific performance in cameo from jennifer jason lee a real gem uh she's always struck me as an actress who's almost too good for acting there aren't enough good roles every year to accommodate the great work that Jennifer Jason Lee can do. She turns up for just 10 or 15 minutes as Robert Pattinson's main squeeze. Again, just uh, a rich fuck-up that he can use for money and extort from her what she's talking about eloping to um, Cancun or Turks and Caicos or something, and all he's thinking about is, I can use this rich woman to get the five thousand pounds that uh, sorry the five thousand dollars that I need to bail out my brother blah de blah blah everyone's on a grind everyone's on a hustle it's um it's intense it's challenging to keep up with it relentless and I'm really pleased with the choice that Pattinson took because I understand that he got in touch with the Safdies so clearly he knows his independent onions phoned them and said I want to work with you what can we do together and that's it's great because Pattinson still has that star power. And he's making all the right choices. A couple of films with Cronenberg. There was a picture yeah, he, called The he, Rover he as well. You're right. He he does still have his star power, but he he is um, 
firm. Every film he's made has been. I think he's he's taken some really smart decisions, and he's uh, he seems to be fiercely independent, which is uh, which is great to see. You know what? I th- I think he's a really decent actor. Yeah. And uh, Christian Stewart as well. I I think it's really funny that the Twilight films. I have such a low opinion of them because I think that they were. They just look like made-for-TV specials. I think they look yeah. really, really yeah. dull and After drab. the first one, yeah. But the uh, Christian Stewart and uh, came out of it as well, and Robert Pattinson, I just think there's two fantastic actors there. This is the kind of thing that creeps up on you, because I don't even realise that I like Robert Pattinson, and then I look at what I've seen this year and what I've enjoyed. Lost City of Zed, Good Time, two of my favourite films, two of my favourite 15 films this year, and he's in both of them. He's integral to both of them. He gives really good performances... And a lot of what he does in Lost City of Zed is wordless. He plays an al- uh, yeah, he plays an alcoholic, and if you recall, it's one of those survival narratives um, mm. where about thirty minutes in, the entire cast, whatever's left of them, is ragged, gaunt, starving, haunted. They've all grown bushy beards, so there's some good beard acting from Pattinson in that. And in this one, he does some <laughs> does some good kind of just scummy acting. Um, and it's great to see that he's working with Claire Denis as soon as possible. Uh, High Life is coming out later this year. Um, it's interesting how actors change. Robert Pattinson is... He's not Harry Potter. He's not Twilight, is he? That's no, something sure. he did when he was a kid. But there's nothing since... Because there's people like Zac Efron who... As, as I said earlier, people like Zac Efron who... Once they become adults and have a, a greater autonomy over their career, they work as much as they can with James Franco and Seth Rogen, and they're keen to show that they've got a comedic side, that they're self-mocking, that they're humble. But Robert Pattinson is more like a proper independent film actor, somebody like Paddy Considine or Eddie Marson, yeah. but who was good-looking enough that he found himself as a wheel within big studio franchises. I don't don't think he really had any interest at all in being in them yeah yeah i see what you mean but people like him and um i don't rate him as good an actor but like um daniel radcliffe from harry potter people like them that they have they know that they then have a hardcore fan base right or probably go and see every picture they ever do yeah for the rest of their lives that yeah that's interesting and i think that radcliffe feels a greater responsibility over his fan base but uh, and uh, i think he's okay and uh, he's a Fulham fan as well. Seems like <laughs> seems like a nice bloke, slightly eager to please. But as child actors go, that Harry Potter lot got looked after. If if that had been in Hollywood, and you think back to the awful stuff, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, and almost everybody as a child actor in the eighties growing up had to go through. I feel that the mm. Harry Potter lot were really well protected, and they've what we've produced there in those three leads is three adjusted adults you know and there should be an academy award every single year just given to them to, to to the you know to the the production warner brothers get one saying well done you didn't fuck them up those three seem like normal individuals <laughs> that's commendable but i think that radcliffe efron they're eager to step uh, relinquish and shrug off their child acting stuff and show that Hey, look at me! I can do this. Whereas with Robert Pattinson, yeah. it's not like that. He's—if anything—he's withdrawn. He's not even always playing leads. And that you know, it's yeah. one thing. To, one Sometimes thing to, he just turns up. <laughs> yeah, and it's one thing to take an obviously weird picture like uh, Swiss Army Man, 
Yeah. Or to tilt towards a dramatic role in something by a big director, so Scorsese or a Coen brother. But Pattinson's going out of his way to find people working on tiny budgets like the Safdie brothers because it's invigorating and interesting and that's the work he wants to do. So well done him. He's one of my one of my heroes of the year. And that was good time. Yeah, and another one, um, Lakeith Stanfield. Now, I, I didn't get to mention this earlier, but the bloke who turns up at the beginning of Get Out and then reappears about half an hour in wearing a hat. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's a highlight of the film. Yeah. Now, um, he's a bloke that my dad and I have had an eye on for a couple of years because we started watching Atlanta by Donald Glover. You may know him as Lando Calrissian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... Um, he... I know him as Childish Cambino, but there of we course, go. Of course, yeah. And I know him yeah. now from, um, I couldn't get out of my head all year, the Childish Gambino Redbone remix of uh, Trump. Did you ever hear that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's been featured on a few of my playlists that I've been listening to throughout the year, actually. <laughs> oh, dear. But, um, yeah, so Lakeith Stanfield plays Derek in Atlanta. People like me from previous months, okay? Total control. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, 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 bong, bing, bing, bong. When Mexico sends its people, bing, bong, bing, bong, they're not sending their best. Bing, bing, bong. And I said, we need to build a wall. Bing, 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 bong, bing, bing, bong. And nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Bing, 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 bong. I'm going to bomb the shit out of them. Bing, bong. We will make America great again. Bing, 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 bong, bing. And my dad keeps saying they didn't know Derek was Nigerian. Stanfield was a highlight in Atlanta. I saw him in Snowden as well, just a small role towards the end of it. And Get Out too. Um, he's a kid with a big future. I'm tracking him. I can't wait until the next Atlanta drops. I've been watching on FX. I don't know if the Americans have yet had the second season. But that was big for me. I, I loved that. That was great. In terms of um, in terms of a depiction of a locale and uh, a microculture that I'd never seen before, I loved spending time with the cast of Atlanta. Aronofsky's mother was superb. Did you see that? I can't remember if we talked no, about it. No, I, I missed it. It, it. it was one that I desperately tried to get to the cinema to see, and I, I just missed it before they, they took it off at the multiplex here. But um, uh, but yeah, again, a, a bit like Good Time as well. I've heard that it's, it's divided people, uh, and Elle as well. It's, it's one of those ones that I think some people found incredibly uncomfortable, right? Yeah, as well they might. Yeah, it's deranged. It's as deranged as I hoped it would be. Um, I, I read that Aronofsky, it spilled from him over the course of four or five days. Uh, a maelstrom was in within his mind, and he was writing it in, I think, uh, 14, 15 or 16, post-Noah. And he's, it's, it's a great example of director as auteur. Uh, the film may not... It's not important whether or not it makes sense to the audience, but if you can get on mm. its wavelength, you see that this is the director's brain split open and thrown across a cinematic canvas all this stuff that he was thinking about at one time and as usual with Aronofsky there's a heavy bible influence I mean him and Malik seem to be 
the only mainstream directors who are ever allowed to mention Old or New Testament. But Aronofsky, as a good Jew, is big on his Old Testament. And this one is essentially a parable of Cain and Abel, um, Adam and Eve, God, Mother Earth. It's all in there. But it works in different ways as well. So that that parable's on the surface. But watching it and watching as... The situation degenerates. Uh, it begins with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem living in a, a beautiful house in a tranquil, bucolic environment, which is invaded somewhat by Ed Harris's character, who claims to be a big fan of Javier Bardem, who plays a renowned poet who's struggling with his next work. Ed Harris stays the night. The next thing, he's turned up in the morning with his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer. They get up to Rumpy Pumpy. Then their kids are there. Their, their kids are there having a fist fight in the middle of the lobby, and all the, and it only gets crazier from there. Then yeah. crowds begin to gather, and further they have a wake, and then there's a, a attended by fifty strangers. Then it's a hundred strangers, and at all times uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character is burdened, and um, it felt a little bit like I think we've all had it sometimes when you are hosting a party or you're just slightly overwhelmed at home and you're trying to do the washing up while also sort out the washing because in 90 minutes somebody's arriving and actually no it's 60 minutes and then you're you're texting three different people about when they should arrive only to get texts yeah. from four other people that they're going to be there either late or early or they need to pick up something yeah. then oh my goodness I didn't check the oven now the washing's finished and that's what Jennifer Lawrence's whole bit in this film is like everywhere she turns <laughs> people are uh, n- nefariously or otherwise violating her personal space without a care she's looking at people sitting on a sink she says please don't sit on the sink it's not i can't remember what she's the cantilever isn't working properly she circles back around there's more people on the sink then they're jumping on the sink trying to make it fall from the wall supports uh it just gets crazier and crazier but um yes so in addition to the bible parable it also struck me that in the um slow uh the slow compromising of her privacy, it felt like a comment on Jennifer Lawrence's own stardom, where increasingly the public expects to do everything up to and including staring as Barry Shippies on uh, um, Charlie Brooker once said, stare right up their arsehole. We just <laughs> we demand more and more of people, and I thought that's interesting because I don't know if that was Aronofsky's intention, but he's written a film. Um, a film so malleable that we can easily uh, infer that also. And it, it works nicely there. And you begin to think, this is about Jennifer Lawrence. This is about, uh, you know, a little bit like Robert Pattinson, a proper actress who wants to pursue that as her career, who finds herself in a profitable franchise. And suddenly she belongs to everybody. And everybody needs her time and they feel they're entitled to her time and they think she's a spokesperson for a generation. They're asking her about women's issues. They're asking about women in Hollywood, female role models in in film. What's this? What's that? All of these questions. We and, you know, Jennifer Lawrence is in a bikini. Jennifer Lawrence isn't in a bikini. Jennifer Lawrence is on the red carpet. She's drunk on the red carpet now. She's not drunk on the red carpet. Does that mean she's been to rehab? She's friends with Amy Schumer. It just goes on and it's a maelstrom. And that's how Mother is. It's that writ large. Um, mm. So, goodness. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, so th- that's a pick just for its a- aggressive cinema. Fantastic work from Aronofsky. Because you and I saw Noah and it's okay. 
I think. Yeah, it's barely okay um, <laughs> for, from memory. But yeah, no, I've been. I'm look, looking forward to Mother. I'll definitely be checking it out soon. And uh, yeah, you're right about uh, Jennifer Lawrence uh, again. A bit like Patterson, someone who who's pretty independent and, and keen to make uh, independent decisions. But yeah, I do feel for her. She is looked upon as spokesman of a generation, uh, certainly for 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 her gender. The only actor, actor or actress born in the '90s to win an acting-related Oscar. Uh, which, yeah. So that's an accolade in in of itself. And it's easy to—it's easy for me to forget just how good she is because of the cultural proliferation, because she's everywhere, and and that's because of the Hunger Games, which I understand are decent films, and the X Men films, which are uh, increasingly boring, I suppose. But then I go back to a performance of hers, like in American Hustle. Empty. Oh, American empty, Hustle. Empty, you know. <laughs> She's so good in that. She was also in one of my favourite films of 2015, uh, which was Joy. Do you yeah. remember oh, the um, yeah. real-life woman events? Was it Mops? I'm yeah. trying to remember. The Wonder Mops. Basically yeah. made it big on QVC and, and really, uh, like, basically came into QVC and told them how they should probably be trying to sell her mop that she's invented, you know, sacrificed everything for to invent, and uh, and then, like, redefined the way telly... Uh, television sales work. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, really fascinating story, um, and um, yeah, she was phenomenal in that. Mother's redolent of that too. That um, David O. Russell technique, where Jennifer Lawrence is surrounded by a, a little bit like Isabella Pair in L, surrounded by people demanding her attention, and that mm. happens in Silver Linings Playbook, but especially in Joy. All cineasts. Make sure you watch one of her films every three to six months just to refresh your memory that she's an astoundingly talented young actress. I don't know if she has a... I don't know how big her career is going to be, but already... I mean, as you say, like she's she's a baby. Just do the uh, David O. Russell, Jennifer Lawrence trilogy. Yeah. Uh, which is Silver Linings, Playbook, yeah. American Hustle and Joy. And how useless, but hilariously useless and irritating she is in American Hustle with the, uh, don't put metal in the science oven, Bleh, you know, and then sets <laughs> fire to the crib. But then yeah. how terrific she is in joy when it's a, one of my favourite things in all films is when characters have long threatened to demonstrate the full capacity of their ability. And then they finally do, like in 8 Mile when Eminem's been gearing up to spit these rhymes all film and then he finally delivers and it's the same in joy where it's been building and building and she realizes i'm gonna have to solve this myself aren't I? i'm gonna have to go down there and do it myself well this is what happens when joy goes down there and does it herself and she does it you know fantastic performance in mother it's a shame that she and aronofsky have subsequently broken up but if that's all that they really did with the relationship if they just had some fun times and made that film then they can look back and say we made one of the best pieces of cinema, one of the best expressions of artistic expressions by any director of the century. Then, then well done them. Uh, have we got time for me to talk about one more of my favourite films of the year? Go on, Fletch. I will let you talk about one more of your favourite films of the year. Go on. Call Me By Your Name, which was an absolute tonic to me. I was in a particularly busy run at work. And I saw it under some of the worst circumstances as well in terms of cinema going. I finished an early shift. I think I got five hours sleep. Uh, and I thought, I need to make something of this day so it's not just me getting, getting up, up after five or six hours, Kip, <laughs> working for eight, nine, ten hours, doing extra union stuff and then going home and sleeping and barely even eating. So I got along to the Watermans to see Call Me By Your Name on my J's 
and it spoke to me so clearly. Again, now, I don't know how terrific a film it is. I don't know if it's going to be remembered in 10 years. Across the board, five-star reviews. Maybe it's just a travelogue, but it spoke to me. It connected with me it, it, as, as though it were a film designed only for me. So Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name is set in 1983 in Italy. It details Timothy Chalamet, uh, the son of a university professor who is vacationing while working, dragging statues from a lake in beautiful Italian countryside. So all Chalamet is doing is just knocking about, drinking, smoking, partying for the summer and into his world bursts Army Hammer's character and they begin a tentative love affair. But, um, my goodness, so number one, set in 1983, yeah, that's that's what I'm all about. Number two, Love My Way by Psychedelic Furs, that's superb, fantastic stuff, like a a lovely bit of early 80s post-punk electro. Mm. Army Hammer dresses exactly how I dress when I go on holiday, except he looks like how I wish that I looked when I was on holiday. Just sophisticated shorts, which is what I wear, but I don't, I don't quite look as good as him. And he has on <laughs> just the, uh, the button shirt, but undone by three buttons. He's wearing a huge star of David, because unlike Chalamet's character, Chalamet's character at one point says, uh, my mother says we're Jews of discretion. Whereas Army Hammer, in the, mid- you know, in the middle of the 80s, at a politically difficult time, is showing his Judaism with pride. Um, and he's, he's kind of like this blonde Adonis super Jew rolling around on bicycles with his, um, his sports trainers and dancing fantastically to the psychedelic furs. And that scene in particular when Chalamet admires how lost Army Hammer is in the music. Um, it's laser beam to my brain. Uh, the, the look on my face was one of utter admiration and enjoyment feels entirely designed for me. Um, and I think that it's a film of, I don't know if it's sensual or sensuousness, but it's a film about enjoying uh, sun and drink and experiences. That's, that's all it is. It's, it's a, a, a one lost golden summer. Um, and that might be my film of the year. I saw it when I was tired and stuffed because I'd eaten dinner in about 22 minutes at the Waterman. So I, I arrived there, I said, it's 8 o'clock, the film's at 8.30, can I still order a curry? And they managed, <laughs> they managed to whip it up for me and I ordered one chicken curry and a vegetable biryani, had half of each somehow, and jumped in there so I was full, I was tired, and I wasn't even that psyched about the film and I was even less psyched when I saw that it was written by James Ivory, which makes it almost like Merchant Ivory. And yet what <laughs> unfurled before me was beautiful and all about enjoyment and enjoying what you have at the time that you have it, even if ever so briefly. Every listener so needs guess to watch That's it. the wonderful thing. It was so unexpected, but it mm. just came out and punched you in the face, slapped you in the gut. No, I suppose I suppose the way or rather it, oh. it beckoned me to join it, I suppose. I was I was sat ten yards from the dance floor and I saw what was happening. I thought I need to get in on that. Wow. I'd love to hear a counterpoint. Oh. There was an excoriating article in the New York Times about its demerits, some of which I could understand. I didn't really necessarily agree with all of it. So What was the gist? 
I can't remember. You don't I, remember? Because yeah. I, 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 five minutes after reading, I somewhat discounted it and put on the psychedelic furs and danced around. And I think that takes us to the end of our rundown, other than my worst film of the year was The Snowman. Ah, Luke snowman. had one to talk about as well and both of them unfortunately feature Michael Fassbender now if you follow us on Facebook and Twitter <laughs> you may have noticed that I did reference how it's been an Annus Horribilis for Fassi Assassin's Creed didn't work, Alien Covenant yeah, was a I mean he was good in Alien Covenant in a dual role they really doubled mm. down on Fassbender as if it wasn't clear enough that Ridley Scott's bored of making alien films and just wants to make <laughs> David films. He then gave him two roles, uh, one of which he seems to be playing Iggy Pop from about 1998. Yeah. <laughs> um, but The Snowman by Alfredson, who did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy years ago now. It's terrible. It doesn't... Uh, it's the kind of picture that isn't released so much as escapes. So much yeah. is wrong with it. And... Under normal circumstances, if it wasn't such a big literary adaptation with a named director, who I think was Academy Award nominated, it would have gone straight to, to straight to DVD. What do we call that now? So, uh, straight to DVD. Oh, yeah. What do you call that now? Yeah, but straight to uh, rental, straight to streaming. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, it's, I think, trouble production, right? And uh, oh, reshoots and all this kind of thing. Dreadfully so. Now, there was a glimmer of hope at the beginning when I saw that it was edited by Thelma Schoonmaker, Martin Scorsese's editor. They've worked together uh, through the, at the tail end of the 60s and the early 70s. Then they had to break apart because Thelma wasn't in the union. They reunited for Raging Bull and have worked together consistently ever since for just about 40 years now. So I thought, mm. well, okay, maybe there were problems, but she was able to save it. She was not able to save it, listeners. She was not able to save it by a long shot. There are manifold problems with The Snowman. One of them is that Michael Fassbender is cast as a hard-bitten detective, and I noticed that Alfredson has to light him so particularly to get anything bad-looking out of Fassbender. It's pathetic. So uh, there's a, there's a couple of shots where... It seems like they've looked at Fassbender and thought, now you still look fit. Can you turn 10 degrees? Now you still look really fit. Can you, okay, maybe if you go to craft service and you get a few donuts <laughs> in you, and then if you if you twist a bit and we, and he's meant to be a broken down alcoholic and overweight, unshaven, and you look at it and you think, no, it's Michael Fassbender. It's Michael Fassbender, and he looks like he didn't do his sit-ups today. It just doesn't work as casting, number one. Um, the plot doesn't quite make sense. The, one of the saddest aspects is Val Kilmer is in it, but is in the throes of his cancer treatment. So um, I, I, I'm not sure to what extent Val Kilmer can't speak right now, but his voice is in trouble. He's had yeah, cancer I've of the tongue that. or of the throat, and I, I don't know if he's relearning to speak or if that's it for him. And he may no longer be able to ever speak properly again. But his voice mm. has changed substantially. Um, he's looking healthy. So I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Because like any Willow fan was deeply worried by the paparazzi shots of him over the last 18 months. But anyway, yeah, he shouldn't have been in... He should not have been in The Snowman. Feels like an intervention was needed to, to just take him out and reshoot it. I mean... 
hell if we can take Spacey out of all the money in the world. We could certainly yeah. have removed Val Kilmer because Val Kilmer just looks like the the, the performance is quite good, but all of the audio is uh, ADR loop. I'm not even sure if it's his own voice when it's redubbed. It's a nothing part. He barely speaks. Really off-putting, and th- and that's the problem. It takes you out of the film and just makes you start to think: Is Val Kilmer all right these days? And you almost mm. want uh, you want to rather than watch the film, you think I'm just going to dash to the lab and get my phone out and check how he's doing. I want to know if Val's all right and if the cancer treatment is working. And uh, characters are introduced and then receive no payoff at all. It's an absolute mess. I, I suppose it was meant to be a Scandi noir in a Scandi noir in the tradition of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And could easily have been adequate, but it's done. It's so done. You didn't see it then. I did not see uh, the Snowman. Uh, obviously, very confused. I thought it was a remake of the Raymond Briggs classic. <laughs> no, no interest in reliving that. I've got the Raymond Briggs Snowman uh, DVD that has David Bowie doing the intro. So that's enough Lovely. for me. That's that's enough Snowman for 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 one lifetime. My low point of the year, like you say, did involve Fastbender. We won't dwell on it too much because we did talk about it extensively in a previous podcast. But Alien Covenant, like you say, it's a shame that Ridley Scott seems to have gotten bored making Alien films. Maybe they should just be left to die. I think the franchise, it just felt so, so tired. And uh, as we said in the uh, the last podcast, it um, spends a lot lot of time uh, pontificating in the same way Prometheus did about, as far as I can gather, not a whole lot. And yeah. then in the final act, it remi- remembers that it's an Alien film and it just quickly goes through the greatest hits of Alien in about 25 minutes. Uh, and, that's, and that's the movie. So I, I, I didn't really quite understand why it was made, why any of us needed to see it. I don't think the world was calling out for it to exist. Yeah, I'm really, really sorry. Ridley. And we, do tr- we try to be positive on one sensational shot, don't we? There's so many people... Uh, online these days who are, who are very negative about things so we always try and try and be positive but um alien covenant did not tick any many boxes for me apart from one very important box which i do have now uh which is my john denver box yeah and a- alien covenant gave a big fat tick uh to the john denver box so that yeah. that was positive i think it's it's good that um one of the least enjoyable films of the year that we saw at the cinema alien covenant and the counterpoint to that is uh, Logan Lucky, in mm. terms of pure enjoyment, was only passed by Call Me By Your Name and possibly Baby Driver in terms of pure enjoyment for me, and both have John Denver in there. Um, I think uh, yeah. as well, I think as a counterpoint to the to the tragedies of Alien Covenant and Alien Prometheus Covenant, has that yet been given subtitles? And <laughs> but it's uh, I think it's actually Prometheus Answer the Call. <laughs> I so I think Prometheus is a film that actually gets worse the more you watch it and Covenant may be the same but as a counterpoint to that Ridley Scott is doing compelling work The Martian now I haven't seen The Martian yes. you've seen it haven't you love it yeah it's, right? a, it's a great movie and on the set of The Martian Ridley insisted on one or two takes for everything he wanted it to be fresh he wanted fresh performances all the actors interviewed said this is fantastic this is connecting me with something challenging and exciting Matt Damon said I haven't done this for a while and and Mm. so Ridley is still able to do compelling stuff and it's interesting to think about Um, we expect 
if we talk about footballers, we expect them to be able to perform certain fundamentals. That's why it's irritating when they can't score a penalty. Because the only mm. thing that's different is that there's a level of pressure involved. But we expect fundamentals of footballers and sportsmen. And there are fundamentals that we expect of actors now. On a David Fincher set or on many sets, there are, there are actors that prefer to have five or six takes just to warm up, to get into where they need to get to. It's exciting for Ridley Scott to say, I'm not doing that. I want it in one. I might give you a second. Any actor that says, well, it takes me a while, Ridley Scott can say, are you or are you not a professional actor? Have you not <laughs> been in 40 films? I understand you're on the A-list. Well, I expect a certain level of professionalism on this film. That's what I'm looking sure. for. I want people to bring it in the first two or three takes. That's all you're getting. And imagine the excitement that, that when you realise you have to do it, you have to connect with it. And at the same time, it's staying fresh. You're not reading and you're not giving line readings 20 or 30 times. I think that might be why Kristen Wiig was selected for The Martian because through her improv through her improv background she's able to although as we talk about like she'll give 9 12 line readings they may not all be funny but they're all professional she hits the mark each time yes ridley's made two really boring uh, cul-de-sacs in prometheus and in covenant but in the martian and then with the forthcoming all the money in the world he is push he somehow as a man in his 70s is pushing cinematic boundaries now i think luke and i are both suspicious and wary of excising kevin spacey entirely to be replaced by christopher Plummer. Mm. i'm not saying it sets a precedent i don't think it's a great look so morally right morally i'm probably opposed to that right and we all know it's a commercial decision however artistically it's fantastic that ridley scott has said i can do that we're 30 days yeah. from release, but I can do it. I'm going to see if I can do it, and I'll get, you know, get, get in Christopher Plummer, who is a better fit for the role anyway. And it's a challenge to himself, isn't it? Can I, we, we are four weeks from this film being in cinemas. You know, forget about just... I think he runs one, uh, like a lot of our heroes by this point, I think the Spielbergs, people like that, a lot of these people who've held massive pictures over decades... I think he runs, by all accounts, an incredibly tight ship on set. Yeah, yeah. I think people know what they're doing. And you need to as well. And so at the end, of, at the tail end of the year, the, a, a, a great artistic challenge was set and met and completed by a man in his 70s and a man in his 80s. Because I was going into that, I thought one of them could well die on set. The stress involved, the pressure involved in that, and all of it potentially unnecessary as well. Because if that film had just been buried, no one would have thought any less of Ridley Scott and Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams and everyone else involved in it. If it came out or if it never got released, it would have been like uh, David O. Russell's Nailed, which uh, now known as Accidental Love, which took about eight years, maybe ten years to get to DVD. But instead, Ridley did something amazing. And it's uh, it's in my mind so much that I actually dreamt. I've been having, well, I've been remembering my dreams for the last couple of weeks. I don't know why that is. Maybe my sleep's been more disturbed. I usually go months without remembering anything, and I probably only remember two or three dreams a year upon waking. But recently they've been quite vivid. And what I dreamt last night was that I was at a pulp gig, kind of like an All Tomorrow's Parties affair where. 
they were going to play all the hits or just one album, probably just different class. Mm-hmm. And there would be guests like when I've seen Jarvis. I saw Jarvis Cocker doing the music of Scott Walker, and he was one of the three or four singers they had. And Richard Hawley was there also. So it was that kind of setup where Pulp would be there, but they would bring on various luminaries. And they beckoned to stage left and said, and joining us as well, Christopher Plummer. And he came right. out looking like Mike Wallace in The Insider with um, a kind of Golden Gecko style blue pinstripe shirt <laughs> open at the collar and braces and he took the applause and i think my dream brain was thinking of course because christopher Plummer has to be in everything now that's mandated by hollywood and so why <laughs> why wouldn't he be at the pulp gig and, and then I, I woke up before i got to see what christopher Plummer was doing performing with jarvis cocker <laughs> that's how it's infested me i like that <laughs> Well, I look forward to you going to sleep this evening and uh, let me know how it all turned out. Yeah, maybe I can, because this is the thing, I'm not even sure if All the Money in the World is going to be a decent film. Maybe I can dream the film, then we don't have to watch it. We can just commend <laughs> the artistry behind it, if not the moral decisions that led to that. I, I haven't heard any early buzz on it, but I've been, I've been enjoying the trailers uh, every time I see it on, on uh, at the movies, so I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll probably go, go watch it. On that note... What's January looking like? We've got three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which is, uh, I think most people call it three billboards. But I'm certainly looking forward, certainly looking forward to it. And in fact, um, on New Year's Eve, I had New Year's Eve in this year uh, and decided to chill out watching in Bruges. So I'm in the perfect mood to watch three billboards. Yeah, so this is the return of Martin McDonough. I caught seven psychopaths at the cinema. In Bruges, I slept on, to my great detriment. And caught up with it, I was wary of the wary of the hype, I suppose. And it was at a time when I was still certainly a little bit cynical about uh, overwhelming critical praise. Because when was it? 12 years ago, I suppose. Yeah, so I still yeah. had that, that kind of um, latent teenage attitude of, well, it can't be that good if everyone likes it. Then I saw it and realised, <laughs> oh yeah, it is bloody, really bloody good. Um, so I caught Seven Psychopaths at the cinema everyone's in that one I thought it was fine but I haven't seen it subsequently I think Film 4 have the rights at the moment so Three three Billboards is incredibly welcome my uncle's excited about it Frances McDormand is among my favourite actresses I don't think there there probably isn't a better actress working today she's tied with five or six others what a magnificent performer she is oh you know, blimey, that's a really good question. I don't think she has. I think she, I think everything that she she's done is fantastic. Uh, damn, nothing leaps to mind. One of the best. I before Charlie Rose was canned from his own program for alleged sexual impropriety over thirty years. He had Francis McDormand, Martin McDonough, and Sam Rockwell on his show talking about three mm. billboards, and um, Francis made a funny comment. She said. She was asked about the role and she said, well, it's very rare that I get offered such a great role like this. I mean, even from my own family, because she's <laughs> married to one of the Coen brothers. And then <laughs> yeah. you realise that even every time they make a picture, they can't make Fargo again because she appears yeah. in most of them. But she only has the cameo in Hail Caesar. Uh, that that tickled me. Um, for, so, as Luke says, Friday, January 12th, three billboards. Uh, Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, Dinklage, who isn't in In Bruges. Don't make that no, mistake. No, he's not. That would be grossly rude. 
and Johnny Hawks and Lucas Hedges from one of our favourite films. He's the teenage nephew in Manchester by the Sea. Opening the same day, everyone knows about this, Spielberg's The Post. Spielberg's, once again, I mean, talk about hard working. He's getting on um, 70-ish, I suppose, and yet it's another instance where he's re- releasing two films in essentially one calendar year. Did it in the 80s with Always and Last Crusade, Schindler's List in Jurassic Park, Amistad and Lost World, Munich and War of the Worlds. Every eight or so years, he seems to think, well, how busy can a man be? Could I work 390 days in a year? And so this is Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, and interestingly, Bob Odenkirk in a dramatic role, which I'm excited to see, off the back of Fargo, for instance. I haven't yet watched Better Call Saul, but I love him from Mr. Show. So The Post is out on January 12th as well. But before that, out on release at the moment, Molly's Game by Sulkin and Hostiles looks decent. Now, Scott Cooper's got a bit of a checkered track record. I liked Crazy Heart. Did you see Black Mass, Luke? No, I didn't, no. Good, probably keep it that way. I thought it was Bobbins. (laughs) Bobbins! Uh, It looked like a kind of return to form for chameleon Johnny Depp. He's going to be old Donnie Brasco, Ed Wood-style Johnny Depp, rather than Mr Pirates, Mr Mad Hatter Johnny Depp. But no, it, it didn't do anything for me. So Crazy Heart was great. Black Mass, I thought, sucked. And Out of the Furnace, I didn't catch, but it seems to be in the middle. But Hostiles by Scott Cooper, starring Christian Bale, Rosamund Pike, Paul Anderson from Peaky Blinders, Timothy Chalamet from our, one of our films of the year, Call Me By Your Name, and a number of top Native American actors, including the great Wes Studi. It's kind of a, a running joke for me. There's really only like a dozen Native American actors. So Graham Greene from Die Hard With a Vengeance, for instance, is one of them. Yeah. Adam Beach, Gary Farmer, Wes Studi. Um, and because there's not many, it feels like we've had the same dozen or so for almost 25 years now. Uh, something really needs to be done about that in terms of representation. Some kind of bursary or something to get to get more <laughs> in, Indigenous Americans into drama school because we need a new generation. Most of them, mm. are at, at their youngest, they're in their 40s. Um, and please do try to find Brad's Status, which is the new film by Mike White. You know him as the writer of Orange County and The Good Girl and School mm-hmm. of Rock. I loved Enlightened, short-lived, only two seasons, uh, a Laura Dern comedy-drama on HBO and on Sky Atlantic over here. So Brad Status stars Ben Stiller and Michael Sheen and Jenna Fisher. It won't run for very long. It's um, one of those rare dramatic outings for Ben Stiller because Hollywood doesn't let him be a dramatic lead, about which I have opinions and reservations that I won't go into now. But next time you hear us, hopefully we will be in our uh, Electronic Labyrinth guys, which we haven't returned to for some time. And we'll be looking at... Two films celebrating their 20th anniversaries, both of which were integral to the 98 Academy Awards, Titanic and As Good As It Gets. Now, As Good As It Gets is part of Luke's A to Z, Mm -hmm. which we've been dipping in and out of. Um, It kick-started us nicely, but we are going back to As Good As It Gets by James L. Brooks and a top opportunity, or as I like to say, top opportunity, to check out Shane Black in a rare acting role. And alongside that, Titanic, one of my favourite films. Uh, I watched it again only three days ago and, of course, by the end was crying my eyes out. Uh, The more you watch it, you realise this is a love letter to a boat. (laughs) It is is a great romance. There is a romance there. There's a romance between Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. And that's there for people who go to the cinema four times a year. But the actual Mm. narrative of the film for me is a, a love story about the myth and the 
beauty and the tragedy of Titanic. We'll be trying to get stuck deep into that because I bloody love it. I look forward to that one because that was one that changed, like the marketing changed how that film was perceived over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, being in the playground as a kid and my friend Dan, uh, who I think listens, Dan Peacher is a, a listening to the show, he uh, came up to me and he said, oh, I just saw this trailer for this great film, Titanic. And it, he was sort of describing this big action picture. Uh, and then by the time it came out, I thought he was having me on because uh, it was being billed as a Gone with the Wind uh, sweeping romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting one. Yeah, we'll, de- we'll delve into that. I look forward to it. I love Titanic. I-, I always have a tear in my eye by the end of it. So Taste of Things to Come uh, at the cinema in January and also uh, 2018 for One Sensational Shot. We're going to be returning to more electronic labyrinth, as Fletcher says. Uh, loads of films, uh, old classic films that are into my DVD collection and also anniversaries coming up that we want to be talking about and thinking about. Thanks very much indeed for listening in uh, this week. Of course, do let us know if there's anything in 2017 that you uh, agreed with us on, disagreed with us on. Uh, maybe you thought that Alien Covenant was fantastic. I don't know. Uh, I certainly <laughs> hope I didn't offend you uh, with my, yeah. my da- damning... Any love uh, for the snowman out there, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and uh, Or the Raymond Briggs snowman. Just writing about that, <laughs> whatever you want. But uh, anyway, uh, if you do want to get in touch, and it would be lovely to hear from you, uh, we are onesensationalshot.com, and you can get in touch with us on the contact form there. Of course, we're on Facebook, One Sensational Shot. Search, search that, and you'll find us on Facebook. Twitter is at One Sensational. Uh, so do get us in touch with us. Tw- tweet us, Facebook us. Go to the website and, uh, of course, do uh, like and subscribe. If you could uh, let your friends know about us, and one of the best ways you can let other people know about the show is help us with our rankings on the likes of iTunes. And the way to do that is by leaving a review on iTunes, even if it's just give us a, a few stars, preferably five-star review, and just a couple lines just to say this was a great podcast or whatever. Uh, iTunes reviews, greatly appreciated. Uh, Stitcher reviews, too, as well. It'll take literally 30 seconds, 45 seconds of your time. But thanks very much indeed for listening, guys, and uh, look forward to catching up with you guys very, very soon about some of the stuff coming up in January. So in the meantime, this has been uh, The Evening Glass with Luke Little Boy and Fletcher Walton signing off. Mm-hmm.